And we open up God's word now. Now we come with a sense of anticipation. God, now we're ready to hear from you today. And if you have your Bibles, we're going to jump straight into Ruth chapter number four. And we're going to tell the concluding part of a series we started five weeks ago called Ruth. And we've been looking for relationship lessons. And this morning we're talking about something called Be Prepared. And it's to be prepared that God is working in your life and in my life. And we need to be prepared to change when it is that God needs us and wants us to change. And how does that relate to our relationships? Maybe you were dating your now spouse. And maybe in the conversation, something like this took place. I hope that you never change. That's not reality of our relationships at all. Our relationships change continually. My wife has made many, I believe, probably positive changes in my life. And she's invested a lot of years, and she's still molding and shaping and changing me. Like, I make the bed now. Like, it's, you know, big accomplishments. And so in a similar way with our spiritual lives before God, God sees us where we are and goes, fantastic, I love you, I care for you, I've, I want to save you from your sins, but be prepared, this isn't the end. I'm going to continue to mold and shape you. I'm going to change you into who I've created you to be. And our response to that is, God, I'm prepared to let you be God. I'm prepared to allow you to be God in my life. And kind of obvious, I mean, it's kind of telling God, God, you're God. I know it's obvious, but there's a permission that we as individuals must make of giving God permission to speak to us today and in through his word and permission to mold us and shape us and to change us. Going to that story of Ruth, I'm going to give you a quick overview of the previous four messages and then lead us into this message this morning. And there's a bunch of C words as we go through these relationship lessons. And we see in the very beginning there was a choice to face facts. We had a family living in Bethlehem, living in the promised land of God. And God was providing for his people, but the circumstances were not always where people would see them being easy or, or calm. And the husband and a wife with two sons, they were living in Bethlehem, and there was a famine in the land at that time. And so rather than turning to God, they turned inwardly to themselves. They did not face facts. And they ran away to the enemies in Moab. Moab and the Moabites were not worshippers of God. In fact, their, their worship was in fact, quite demonic in the way that it, it was presented. In other words, there was nothing there connecting them back to their, their God and their promised land. And during that time, the father passed away, Elimelech, and the, the mother, Naomi, had her two sons, and she had her two sons marry Moabite women, which was against the law of God at the time. And she was trying to take things in control of herself. And then over the course of time, the two sons passed away as well. And now you have Naomi, the mother, the mother-in-law of two Moabite ladies. One was named Orpah. The other's name is Ruth. Now, hence by the name of the series and the book of the Bible called Ruth, we kind of get the idea that Ruth does something miraculous and God works in her life. And then what we see is Naomi says, I 
need to face facts. And the facts are, troubled times are going to come. Life and relationships are not easy at all. We need to face facts. We have a choice of how we're going to respond. And then from that, Naomi came up with the idea of sending her daughter-in-laws back to their family, back to their parents. And she says, I'm going to return empty back to Bethlehem. And Orpah, one of the daughter-in-laws, returns back to her parents. But Ruth made a firm commitment to be loyal. She made an incredible statement. She says, your people are going to be my people. Your God is going to be my God. Where you go, I'm going to go, and I'm not going to leave you. And she made a commitment to be loyal, leaving everything that she knew behind to follow Naomi, but also to follow God. And she has an incredible act of faith there. She chose and committed herself to loyalty. God is set up, and that was the end of chapter number one. Then going into chapter number two, we see the contentment and work hard, where God had set up a system within Israel to provide for people that were foreigners, people that were widows, people that were fatherless, and people that were just unable to provide for themselves. And he set it up in a way that during the harvest season, anything that was dropped or left behind by the harvesters was not able to be picked up by them. It was left for those other people. And it was hard work. In order to provide for yourself, you had to go and gather the the grain and gather just enough to provide for your family just for that day. And there was a trusting in God. And there was a contentment there of saying for Ruth, this is my life now. I'm not going to return to Moab. This is my life living in Bethlehem. And she was now having to learn to work hard and trust God that God was going to provide for her. As it says in chapter number two, it says that she just happened to go to a field by a close relative, a man named Boaz. And that man, Boaz, just happened to have a field where she just walked to. And Boaz just happened to be single. And happened to be rich. Maybe some ladies, that's your ticks of the boxes. Like, oh, single and rich? Fantastic. And God worked in the life of Boaz, I believe, where Ruth caught the eye of Boaz and he asked about her. He found out who she was. And Ruth was very honorable, the way she was taking care of her mother-in-law, the way that she was working hard. She already had a very positive reputation. And Boaz worked behind the scenes and told his servants, drop extra for her. So he didn't say, you know, he didn't say that don't pick up everything. He says, drop extra. And I can imagine them dropping a whole bunch and her gathering it all together. And as she returned back home at the end of chapter number two, we see Naomi who had changed her name previously. She changed her name from Naomi. And she says, call me Mara, which means bitter. So now she's a bitter, and she calls herself old, a bitter old lady. And the end of the chapter number two, she begins to see God's provision and God providing in a way that was quite miraculous and outside of the norm. Uh, Ruth brought back 22 liters worth of grain that day, which was well beyond what they needed for the immediate. And at the end of that chapter, Naomi begins to bless God. She went from bitterness to blessing. And then she found out it was in the land or the the land was owned by a man named Boaz. And she goes, Boaz is a redeemer of ours. That introduces us to a new concept. 
in the book of Leviticus, chapter number 25, and also Deuteronomy, chapter number 25, God lays out a system and a plan for the provision and the, the, the protection of the land. Where a, if a person was not able to provide for themselves, they were not legally allowed to sell the land forever. What they would do is they, God said, I own the land, I'm lending it to you, and your individual family groups, what you can do is a couple of things. You can sell it, in other words, like a lease it for a period of time to another person. And at any time during that period of time, if you have the funds, you can redeem it back yourself and receive the land back. Or you can sell it to a family member because it all has to remain inside the family. And the thought behind that was you have one bad year and everyone sells off their land and the inheritance for the next generations is gone very quickly. And so here we have a term called redeemer often referred to as a kinsman or a family redeemer. And Boaz was one of these redeemers. And we see in chapter number three, Ruth and Naomi come up with a plan of how they're going to approach Boaz and be very vulnerable and ask Boaz to be obedient to God and the law by redeeming Ruth and buying their land underneath their name. And jokingly, as I think about that, because as a family member, you were responsible for the people and your cousins and extended family. And if you really didn't like a particular person, you are very, this is my joke here, you're very invested on the well-being of their husband. Because she goes, I do not want to marry into that family. <laughs> so therefore, I want them to last a very long time. And so what takes place here is Ruth approaches Boaz in a very vulnerable way at the end of the harvest. He's laying down. He's sleeping. It says at midnight she comes and lies at his feet. He wakes up with a start and Ruth asks him, will you redeem me? Which was, was not an easy task. It was expensive. It, it cost emotion and time and, of course, finances. there. And Boaz, without hesitation, says, yes, I will redeem you. But... There is someone else that's closer. So the way it would work is the, you know, the closest relative all the way down. And the way it reads is Boaz would have been number two, but there was someone closer. And that leads us into chapter number four, where there's a great change that takes place in this family. And Boaz has already been proactive. Ruth has been proactive. They have a can-do type of attitude. And that leads us into our challenge is to be prepared to let God be God in our life. Our principle for today is this. When God is working, I must be prepared to change. I firmly believe, and I could have written this another way, God is always working, so I must be prepared to change. That leads us into Ruth chapter number four, and I'm not going to read the entire chapter, but what we're going to do is I'm going to read portions and explain it to you, and then we're going to see God working in this and through this chapter. Frustratingly, I'm just scratching the surface of, of, of this passage today. There's a great deal of truth that we can find in here. There's also a lot of history that I'm going to jump over. I'm not going to take the time to explain because... We can spend a lot of time talking about history and never get into the application. So we're going to be application-based this morning. First point is, be prepared to change. God is working. Why? First of all, it's, a, it's three B words. First is Boaz and redemption. 
The word redemption literally means to set free by paying a price. When you go to the shops, you redeem back what you're purchasing. Whether you pay in cash or you tap and go, you must make an exchange. or Otherwise, it's called stealing. And so you go in there and you redeem back what you're purchasing and then you leave. In a similar way with us in our lives, 1 Corinthians chapter number 6, verse 20 says, You, they can easily be me, were bought with a price. Of course, that price is Jesus Christ. And we can see in the life of Boaz a similarity with the life of Jesus and the redemption of Boaz and the redemption of Jesus Christ. Ruth 4, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Now what would take place here would be in the city gate would be the place where all the transactions for for business were made. And it was where the elders would come and they would come and witness these various transactions. Later on, we see the exchanging of a shoe in order to show and signify that a transaction has been made which again, that's kind of one of the things in the back of my mind, like always wear old shoes to the gate. Because <laughs> they'll give you your best shoes up. And Boaz goes there in the morning. The previous night, he'd been woken up by Ruth and saying, will you redeem me? And now he wakes up in the morning, goes down to the gate, and he's waiting for a person that we don't have a name for. We just know him as the Redeemer. Or I'll call him today the Other Redeemer. And it says there, so Boaz said to this man, turn aside, friend, sit down here. So he turned aside and sat down. And then Boaz begins to explain to this other redeemer, who they would have been close because they were actually their family. And he began to explain to them that Naomi is selling some property that needs to be redeemed. You are the first in line. And this man replies, yes, I will redeem it. Now, this is just me reading between the lines and the humanity here and a little bit of the person personality because Boaz didn't hesitate the night before. He was woken up with a start and he still said yes. So I have the I believe he really wanted to marry Ruth. But he had to go through the proper channels and make sure that the person that was first in line actually had the first right of refusal. So when he explains to this man, this other redeemer, this land is available for sale, he instantly says, yes, I will redeem it. Now, in the back of my mind, Boaz is going, "Uh uh-oh, I really want to marry Ruth. I don't think Boaz was dishonest. This is my opinion. I feel that he probably didn't give all the information because... This other redeemer hears the news that he has to not just buy the land, but also Boaz says, oh yeah, you have to marry Ruth the Moabite as well. Now, this is my opinion. I think he probably went, you have to marry Ruth. Not, you have to marry Ruth like he's excited about it. I think he's making it sound like Ruth is really horrible. You don't want to marry her, but if you have to, you have to. And the man was, first of all, he was willing, but he goes and says, you know, I'm not able. And it says in verse number six, then the Redeemer says, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. He says, I have other responsibilities. I have my family to take care of. I can't bring another um, person into my family. It's going to muddy everything up for my own family. And this is just my thinking again. I think this other Redeemer goes, how about you do it? And Boaz goes, 
Well, I guess so. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. You see, here we see a similarity with Jesus Christ and Boaz. Now, not in the same way that I don't think Jesus is in any way dishonest. But we see two things. We see that he has to be willing and he also has to be able. You can't be willing and unable and still redeem. And you can't be able and unwilling and still redeem. And Jesus Christ was both. He is willing and able to redeem us. And that definition again for redemption is to set free by paying a price. Of course, that price that Jesus paid was dying on the cross for your sins and for my sins. We see that he's willing. There was no hesitation on the part of Boaz. There was no hesitation on the part of Jesus. Titus chapter number 2, verses 13 and 14 says, Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave. The key word there is gave. It wasn't taken. He gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a, a people for his own possession. Jesus Christ was willing. We also see that he was able. In the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. As I've shared once or twice or 50 times already, earlier this year, you as a church, you sent me to Israel for a trip. And I, on the last day, walked through the streets of Jerusalem. And there's this particular street that follows the, the pathway of Jesus. And the pathway that Jesus, historically, they believe, would have taken toward the cross. And it's known as the Via Della Rosa. And across the way, and of course it's different now than it would have been 2,000 years ago. There's different stations of the cross that people stop and spend time in prayer. And you walk along these streets we begin in the morning at the Garden of Gethsemane, and we follow the path of Jesus through that day. And all along in my mind, thinking about Jesus being willing and able, a phrase was, was in my mind all day long. He did this for me. When we personalize redemption, the payment of a price to set a person free, but then you begin to personalize that. He set me free. It causes a change in our life in the way that we view ourselves and also others. And we become incredibly grateful for the sacrifice Jesus Christ made on the cross for our sins. That passage continues on in book of Ruth, verses 9 and 10, and says, Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and belonged to Chilion and Malon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, you are witnesses this day. And the transaction is made, there's exchanging of shoes, the witnesses see this, and then he, he returns with the happy news. They come together, and that's what we see in the second point, which is the word bride. We had Boaz and redemption. We have bride and justification you see we as believers in jesus christ the bible calls us the bride of christ ruth now had a new name she had a new name a new status it wasn't no longer ruth the moabite ruth the widow ruth the poor person she was now ruth the wife 
She now had a new name. She was the bride of Boaz. In a similar way, we are known as the bride of Jesus Christ. A definition of the word justification. The act of God whereby he declares the believing sinner righteous in Jesus Christ. We're going to walk through just for a few minutes that definition and break it up into little sections. We're going to see act and of God and declares and sinners. And I'm going to break them up in the, in the words and we're going to illustrate it and then see that out of Scripture. Because justification is an act, not a process. It is an act of God that's an instantaneous act that now we are justified before God. It's not something like you are partially saved. You are 50% saved now, or you are now 99% saved. It says either you are justified or you are not. It's an individual act. That gives us a great deal of assurance. As it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, what do we have? This is the act. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible and other passages talks about us being at enmity or against God previous to Christ, knowing Christ as our Savior. And now it says we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. It's an instant transaction. You are no more a Christian today than the day that you came to know Christ as your Savior. In a similar way, for a wedding... A wedding takes place. The legal things take place. You now pronounce man and wife. This paperwork is filled out. We file it with the government. And at that time, they are legally married. After 50 years, you are still just as legally married as you were the day that everything was processed. Every day, the day that you said, I do. Now, in the, that time frame, I hope that you've changed a lot. I hope that you've grown a great deal. After 50 years of marriage, you know that person intimately and you're, you're closer to them, but you're no more legally married than the day that you were married. And that's what this is talking about here. And that being instant aligns perfectly with our modern society where we don't want to wait for anything. So if you find that you don't want to wait, justification is for you because it's an instantaneous act at the moment of salvation. We also see that it's of God. So it's an act, not a process. It's of God, not of works. Oftentimes, it's helpful to understand a concept that's difficult to understand by understanding what it's not. So once we understand what it's not, then we can begin to appreciate and comprehend what it is. You see, it's of God, but not of works. Galatians 2.16 Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law because by works of the law no one will be justified what's your best and greatest accomplishment i don't believe we have any olympians here but if you were an olympic gold medalist you worked hard for that you probably carry around your gold medal all the time you may not show it all the time, but you know, underneath your jumper, you carry around your gold medal all the time. And that's your biggest and greatest accomplishment. Or you think about how you've, you're a hero and you've saved someone's life, and that's your biggest and greatest accomplishment. You've been successful at work and successful in your, your home and you're successful at school. Whatever your greatest accomplishment is, I'm going to burst your bubble just for a moment as good and as great and tremendous as your greatest accomplishment is, it's not good enough 
to work your way into God's favor. Tina Turner, the musician and singer, uh, died a couple of weeks ago. You didn't think you were going to hear Tina Turner referenced in church today, did you? She's well known for her song, Simply the Best. And if you grew up in Australia um, during the late 80s into the early 90s, we were bombarded with that song all the time because she was promoting rugby. And it says this, you're simply the best, better than all the rest, better than anyone, anyone I've ever met. And you know what? That may be true for you. You may go, yes, I am. But it's not good enough. Your good works because our justification is not by our good works. Famous verses in the Bible are famous because they're tremendous in truth. We have John chapter 3, verse 16, that says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. It's all Him, not us. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. It's an act, not a process. It's of God, not of works. It's a declaration. It declares not guilty. If you're standing before a judge, all you want to hear is not guilty. To be declared righteous before God. The word righteous simply means to be in right standing before God. To be in right standing before our Creator. Justification never changes. When we've been justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we are declared instantly justified. We are declared not guilty. And you know what's beautiful about that is? We cannot forget our failures. We can't forget our sin. But God says, I'm no longer going to hold that to your account. In a very real way, he's looking at you and saying, I don't remember. What are you talking about? Why do you keep bringing these things up? I've forgiven you of your sins. Let's move forward so I can continue to change you. It says in Romans chapter 8, verse 33, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? That's talking about people that are saved. Now, people that bring charges against us, oftentimes we bring charges against ourselves. We remind God again and again and again of our failures of, of the past, our forgiven sins. We have people that accuse us from the outside, reminding us of our past failures and inabilities. But it says here, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justified. Thank God it's not from us. It's 100% from God and through Him. In a courtroom, God has declared them not guilty, or us not guilty. And then finally, who's this for? You're not justified because we're good people and we're perfect people. The third is, we are sinners, not good people. That verse in Galatians 2.16 again, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And maybe you've heard people in, in say, well, just trust your heart. Or if, you know, just, just, just look, look around you and, and you find encouragement in the things that are around you. And that sounds really, really nice. And it makes a really nice cat poster if you want it on your wall, some sort of encouragement. But it's a horrible theology to look inside for your fulfillment. What does the book of Jeremiah say? Jeremiah 17, uh, verse 9 
The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And then he finishes off with, who can understand it? We're not called to be good enough. We're called to be justified. And when Jesus Christ came, he redeemed us because he was and is willing and able. And then he gives us a new title. He calls us his bride. He gives us a new position in him. And he says, you are now justified. You have a justification. How can you and I be declared righteous? And maybe you know Christ is your Savior. You've known Christ is your Savior for many years. Tremendous. This is an encouragement for you to look back upon what Christ has done in your life. But maybe you're here today and you're yet to place your trust upon Christ as your Savior. Maybe you've been in church a long time, but you've never actually made that choice to say, I'm going to allow God to be God and I'm going to accept his free gift of salvation. There's four points. How can I be declared righteous? It's through faith in Jesus Christ. It's for all people. It's only by grace and it's very costly. First of all, we see in the book of Romans, chapter number 3. In Romans 3, I'm just going to use this as the outline. We could go many different verses, but Romans chapter 3 gives us the answers to these questions. How can I be declared righteous? First of all, it's through faith in Jesus Christ. There's many things that are vying for our attention today. Many things that you can possibly trust in. But we are called to trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone for our salvation. In verse 22, it says, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. It lays it out pretty clearly there. It's not ambiguous. It's not like, I really wonder what they're supposed to have faith in. It says their faith in Jesus Christ. And of course, faith is only as good as its object. It's secondly, it's for all people. And we naturally, we begin to compare ourselves with other people. We begin to compare ourselves with people that we may think that we're better than. And then we'll naturally come to the end conclusion that, you know what, there's other people that are better than us. And if it's a matter of comparing ourselves, we're never going to be good enough in ourselves. But it's for all people. Verses 22 and 23. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's only, number three, it's only by grace. Verse 24. And are justified by His grace as a gift. The word grace is a word that means God's favor upon the undeserving. And if we are, as it says there, if we are sinners, we are undeserving, but we have a wonderful gift. And finally, it is very costly. It cost Jesus Christ his life. That gift that he has for us was not cheap, and it's not something that was easily given. It was something very costly. If you ever received an, a very, very expensive gift or something given to you by someone that you don't, you feel you do not deserve at all, the way you respond to it isn't flippant like, yeah, whatever. You get excited about it. And it's a natural excitement. It's a natural joy. And it's a wow moment because you begin to appreciate the, the gift that's been given to you. And you know something wonderful about being a believer in Jesus Christ is the moment of salvation. You don't have to know everything that God has given to us. That gift is a huge, eternal gift of eternal life. But you know what he's given us? He's given us enough understanding, enough faith, and enough grace to believe in him. That very costly gift. That passage continues on, and it says, 
verses 24, it says, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. A propitiation is a gift by his blood to be received by faith. There's two responses here. We can respond in saying, thank you, God, for saving me from my sin. The other correct response is, God, will you please save me from my sin? And you can do that even where you're sitting right now. At the end of the service, I'll be happy to open up God's Word, the Bible, and show you out of the Bible how you can have assurance of your salvation. But you can place your trust upon Christ as your Savior right where you're sitting right now. You can accept that free gift of salvation by grace through faith. And then you can join people like Ruth with the blessing. That's our third point this morning, is there was a baby. We have Boaz with redemption, a bride with justification. We also see a baby and a blessing. And this blessing here is something tremendous because earlier on in chapter number one, Ruth was hanging around a lady named Naomi whose name was Bitter. And then we see blessings at the end. It says in verse 13, Ruth bore a son. So she's brought into the family of Boaz. She's treated like a wife. They have a child together and they named him Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David. That David there is King David, the king of Israel. And if you study the book of Matthew, you'll see the genealogy of, of Jesus Christ himself. And Ruth is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. We see a lady who had no natural gifting. She wasn't super special in of herself. What she was is God working in and through her to take her where she was and change her and mold her and shape her to bring her through dark times and some joyful times to be the great-grandmother of the king of Israel. And then later on, the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus Christ. So we go back to those different C words that we have there. We have choice and commitment and contentment and can do and changed. As you think through those words, where do you find yourself today? Maybe you find yourself in the, you're facing facts. You have a choice of how you're going to respond. Maybe you're learning commitment and making choices that's going to change your future because you're making choices to turn away from the things of the past and to live and to be loyal to Jesus Christ today. Maybe you're learning contentment. You're learning that hard work and relationships are hard work. Or maybe you're moving forward with a can-do, proactive attitude. And you can see God working, but you don't know what the future is going to hold. Or maybe you're in the, the act of change and God's changing you. And change is never easy. It's always hard. But here's the key. We need to be prepared. And the final statement I want to leave with you through this, this series is this. Be prepared because you are part of something bigger and greater than just yourself. And I've been using that as like a catchphrase through this series, but I don't want it just to roll off our tongues. I want you to stop and think and, and mull that over, that you're part of something bigger and greater than yourself. Ruth had no idea what the future was going to hold. She had no idea her, who her son was going to be the, the, the grandfather of. She had no idea that she was going to be in the lineage and line of Jesus Christ. All she knew was that she was prepared to change today and let God mold and shape and change her.